This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. This morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter, uh, not Luke, we'll look at Luke for a minute, um, but we're going to be in Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus is in the Old Testament. Uh, third book in, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, chapter 16. So if you've got a Bible with you, you can be finding that. If you've got the app on your phone, you can open it up to the sermon notes section if you want to follow along that way. But what I, what I want to do is just start out this morning by saying something. Um, we'll, we'll center ourselves in Leviticus 16 But I want to read to you from Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24, as you're finding Leviticus 16. What's happening here, um, just prior to the, the few verses I'm about to read to you in Luke chapter 24, is that Jesus, on the other side of his crucifixion and resurrection, is walking along the road to Emmaus. And he runs into some disciples, and they're talking to him about all the events that have just taken place in Jerusalem uh, around his own death and resurrection. They don't know that it's him. And they don't know what to make of it, even though they're faithful Jews. And so Jesus says this to them in Luke 24, starting with verse 25. He said to them, how foolish you are, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Jesus is beginning to make a connection now between the events of his life that have just played out in real time in Jerusalem, of which these men were witnesses, and the writings of the prophets in the Old Testament and what they had said was going to happen. Verse 26 Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that is Jesus, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So I just want to start out uh, with this this morning. Whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, I'll say more about that in just a minute. It's always been about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. This is what Jesus is saying. When he says Moses and the prophets, it's a summary statement for all of the Old Testament, including Leviticus, including Leviticus 16, which has been described as the inner sanctum of the Torah, the law, the first five books of the Bible, the, the most holy place, the very center of Genesis through Deuteronomy. It's always been about Jesus. The Bible, um, many of you know, is unlike any other book. The the word Bible itself just means books. It means books because it's it's really not a collection of letters or books as much as a collection of ancient manuscripts uh, that tell one story authored ultimately by God through the hands and minds and personalities of human authors over 1,500 years, over 40 authors, over three continents, and in three languages, Hebrew and Greek, predominantly with a little Aramaic in there. 
There's nothing else like it, divided, as I said, between the Old Testament and New Testament. And maybe, honestly, you come to church a little bit, but like your Bible's never opened, right? I wasn't always a pastor. I'm just kidding. That's actually a horrible correlation. It says you got to be a pastor to open your Bible. Here's what I'm saying by that. I'm not naive, right? I'm not naive. Sometimes some of you forget your Bible up here, and like we don't hear from you for nine months. You never even notice it's gone. So for you and others, um, Old Testament, humanly speaking, before Jesus, Jesus isn't on the scene yet. New Testament, Jesus comes on the scene. Yet the Old Testament is full of prophecies, hundreds of them, about Jesus as God was pointing toward what he was ultimately going to do in Jesus. Where he'd be born, what family line he'd come from, what tribe in Israel he would be from. The Old Testament points toward the Messiah, the Christ. Messiah, just the Hebrew word, Christ, the Greek word, both mean the anointed one, the one who's coming to rescue us, the one who's coming to make all things right, the one who's coming to make all things new. But the Old Testament is also full of dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of pictures, of pictures that point toward Jesus. See, we are Westerners. I know I've used the phrase in the West before and had someone ask me, are you talking about the Western U.S.? I said, no, I'm talking about the global West, including Western Europe and North America. We're Westerners so that when I stand up here to teach, what what you're wanting and needing and expecting from me are, are points right, are number one, number two. This is how we think. It's how we communicate and receive information is through bullets and points. But that's not true in the East, and it certainly was not true in the ancient Near East, the Mediterranean world, Middle Eastern world from which the Bible comes from. They primarily taught in pictures and symbols and images through metaphors and illustrations. This is going to be that. This is like that. And Leviticus 16 is simply a picture. It's not simply a picture. It is action that they engaged in for centuries. But it's more than that. It is a picture of what God was one day going to do fully and finally through Christ. And here's my prayer for us this morning. Here's why I say all this. My prayer for us, especially for those of us who've been hanging around church or in and out of church for a a long time and we're familiar with words and we're familiar with the rhythms, is that by, by God's mercy and through the power and the work of the Holy Spirit alone, because he's the only one who can do it, many of us this morning might come to a new and deeper understanding of the grace of God a new and deeper understanding of the grace in God of the grace of God and for some of you maybe you would come to understand the grace of God in a way you never have because here's what i know here's what i know there's a bunch of us this morning right here in this room watching online that are carrying around a lot of guilt and shame a lot of guilt and shame. And we've been doing it for a while. And God doesn't want you to do it anymore. God wants to set you free of that so that you can walk in the freedom of the gospel that Christ provides.
Now, having said that, let's turn and let's look at Leviticus chapter 16. Before I read, I want to pray for us. Heavenly Father, prepare our hearts. God, soften them. By your Spirit, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, minds to understand and receive. God, hearts to embrace and respond to your truth. Awaken in us this morning, God, a renewed sense of your goodness and your grace. God, maybe for the first time you will see some this morning with your redemptive grace. And for the first time in their lives, they'll believe Jesus that you are who you say you are and you are all that they need and they'll stop striving to do life on their own. They'll stop striving to work their way towards some kind of cosmic approval and they'll say yes to you. God, may it be so to the glory of your name. Amen. All right, let me set up where we're going to be. I'll start in verse 6 of Leviticus 16 in just a minute. So what's going on here? Once a year in the Jewish calendar, God instructs his people to come together on what was known as the Day of Atonement. And this was the only day that the high priest would go into the sort of inner sanctum of the tabernacle, if you will, the kind of holy of holies where God's truest presence was seen to reside. Only on that day, and on that day, provision would be made for all of the sins of all of the people. And God's giving instruction to this here through Moses. Let's pick up verse 6. Aaron, who was Moses' brother, Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin. Aaron's a high priest. To make atonement for himself And his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord. So the Lord had commanded him to get a bull and get two goats before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting, at the entrance to the tent of meeting, literally the tabernacle. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Now, before we go on, I want to kind of paint this picture and say a word about this Hebrew word that's translated um, as scapegoat in the, NIV, in the NIV. It may be Azazel in some of your Bibles. That's the actual Hebrew word, and there's a lot of lack of clarity around it. Uh, it was used in a number of different ways, and this is, there's some mystery to what's going on here. But if we just look at the word itself, the etymology of the word, what does the word mean? What are the pieces of the word brought together mean. When you look at the word Azazel, when you look at the Hebrew word Azazel, it means to to take away or send away, to remove entirely. To take away, to send away, to remove entirely. 
So however and whatever's happening here, we know that this goat that's not going to be sacrificed, the goat that's not going to be sacrificed is going to be taking something away and taking it away entirely. Taking it away entirely after Aaron has made a sacrifice as an atonement for his own sin, sacrificed uh, the goat that would not be the scapegoat as an atonement for the outer places of the tabernacle to cleanse that space before God. Now, let's move on. Let's look down at Leviticus verse 20. Leviticus 16 verse 20. When Aaron has finished making atonement, For the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. Now, I want to pause here at verse 20. Because there was a measure of suspense that the people lived with when the high priest went in to the entrance of the tent of meeting and into the holiest of places. He disappeared from their sight to make this atoning sacrifice. And there was a sense of awe and fear. They had seen people who treated the name and the instruction of the Lord lightly struck dead in their presence. And there was a deep anticipation. Would he come out? Would he survive? What would be the result on the other side of his atoning sacrifice? And right here you begin to see glimpses of the reality of Jesus centuries later on the cross, dying in the tomb, and the disciples wait. They wait really in disbelief, not imagining he'll ever come out. Look at verse 21. He that is Aaron is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat. So the bull has been sacrificed. The other goat has been sacrificed. The instructions that God lays out throughout this chapter have been followed. Now Aaron lays both hands on the head of the live goat and is to confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites. All the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites. All their sins. And put them on the goat's head. Then he shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place. And the man shall release the goat in the wilderness. Now, Jewish tradition and later writings say uh, it was actually quite common, common for the goat to be carried off way, way, way deep into the wilderness and just to make sure he was pushed off a cliff. Because you don't want to wake up the next morning and have the goat grazing on your front lawn who has all the sins of the people on his head, right? So what's happening here is a picture of atonement. Because throughout the year, sacrifices were made for the temporary forgiveness of sins. And it had to be made over and over in specific ways for specific sins of commission, of omission. But what's happening here is more than the forgiveness of sins. It's the taking away 
of sins. It's the taking away of sins. Through that physical act, the people are seeing a picture of God placing all of the guilt, all of the sin and the wickedness of his people on the head of that animal who's then taken out into the wilderness and their sins are forgiven for an entire year. There's a cleansing. All of the sin is removed, is sent out. And what we, seen with, what we see here with the goat that's sacrificed and with the goat that's led into the wilderness is a picture of the means of atonement, which is death and the spilling of blood in the goat that's sacrificed. And then the effects of atonement, the removal of sin, the taking away of sin. Do you understand that it's not just forgiveness? It's more than that. It's forgiveness and removal of their sin. Forgiveness and removal of their sin on the head of this goat. Now, when we come to the New Testament, we'll be back in Leviticus in just a minute. When we come to the New Testament and John the Baptist is preaching and teaching, he's laying the way for the coming of the Messiah, the Christ. We see in chapter 1, verse 29, this. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is that idea, Azazel. The one who carries it off. The one who takes it away entirely. Here he is. He's on the scene now. Now something's interesting. If you think about the, the, uh, more toward the end of the book of John as Jesus is preparing to be crucified and he's brought before Pilate. Let's look at verse, uh, verse 13 of John 19. Verse 13 of John 19. Now, and in case some of you are curious now, you have no idea where we're going, I know where we're going. So just hold on and follow along. John 19, verse 13. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, and most of us remember them shouting, crucify him, but they say something before. Take him away. Take him away. Crucify him. Here's the Greek version of that Hebrew word, azazel. Take him away, take him away, crucify him. And Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? The Jews answered, we have no king but Caesar. The chief priests answered. Verse 16, finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. And what happened? He was taken away outside of the city in what had been known throughout history as the wilderness. And he's crucified. He's taken away outside the city into what had been known for centuries as the wilderness. And there he's crucified. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 11 through 13. 
the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. But the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate. You hear the author of Hebrews saying this was about that. That was about this. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. To make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. The author of Hebrews just issues us a challenge to follow Jesus with commitment, devotion, and passion. Because what we see here in John and in Hebrews is that the scapegoat could remove sin for a year, but the Son of God could remove sin forever. Forever. It was a new day, a new season, a new system. God's redemptive work had reached its climax in Jesus Christ. It's always been about Jesus. Genesis is about Jesus, ultimately. Leviticus points to Jesus. First and second Samuel point to Jesus. Job points to Jesus. The Psalms point to Jesus. The prophets, on and on I could go. It's always been about Jesus. He's the single central character of the grand narrative that we find in Scripture. Why does this, why does this matter? What's the big deal? Here it is. Some of us, as I said earlier, some of us today in here have been carrying around shame and guilt. Some of us all of our lives. As far back as you can remember, you have felt the weight of guilt and shame in your life. It could be because of something we did. It could be because of something that was done to us. Now, I don't want to go too far with this. Guilt can be good. Guilt can be good when it leads to conviction and repentance and Holy Spirit-empowered life change. But guilt not dealt with turns to shame. Guilt not dealt with turns to shame. Guilt, guilt guys, is about our actions or actions done to a shame is about our identity. Shame is about our identity. When we carry around guilt because of something we've done, or maybe because of something that's been done to us, and we never deal with it appropriately, we never bring it to God. That action that was the cause of the guilt moves beyond an event to who we think we are, to who we think we are. Are you with me? We come to believe that who we are is defined by that event, that decision, that struggle that we can't seem to shake instead of by who we are in Christ. But what Scripture says is that for those of you who are believers, for those of you who've repented of your sin, who said yes to Jesus Christ and received the new life that God gives, you've been baptized, you've been brought into the family of God, 
Who you are is defined by who you are in him, period. It's defined by who you are in him. And this morning, right now, God is moving and stirring. The Holy Spirit's working in some of your hearts and minds. And you know he's speaking to you. And God wants to take that shame off of you. Shame is not an emotion that comes from God. Shame is not an emotion that comes from God. Shame mars the human person, the human sense of identity. He doesn't want you carrying that around. Now, you may have to deal with some of the tangible consequences of human actions, right? Whether they were actions that you did or actions that someone else did, that's a reality. That's, that's just a simple truth. But that's an event. It's not who you are. And some of you this morning have let it define you for way too long. And God is speaking to you this morning saying, it ends today. It ends here this morning. Give it to me. It's not who you are. It's not who you are. Because in me, it's been taken away entirely. For those in Christ, Christ has carried on himself as both the means and the effect of atonement. All of your sin. All of your sin. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. A verse that will be familiar to some of you. God made him, that is Christ, who had no sin to be sin for us. Who's the us? The us is all who believed. All who ever will by God's mercy and grace come to believe. So that in him, let's say that little phrase together, in him. We're Baptists, but we can do better one more time. In him. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Do you hear the beauty and the power of that divine switch? Christ becomes sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. The spotless ones, the blameless ones, the free ones. Before God, saints. Now, I want to paint some really tangible pictures here. Some of you in this room, some of you watching online, you're, you're older. Your parenting days are done, and you were not very good parents. And you know it. And you've been carrying guilt and shame around for years about that. I want to say this to you this morning. You can't go back and reclaim those years, but you can, by God's spirit and power, redeem them. You can choose now to say, I love you to your adult children. You can choose now through the spirit of Christ to serve them, 
You can choose now to be vulnerable and to be generous. Ladies, some of you in here at some time in your life were violated in a way that you never should have been. And you've been carrying guilt and shame over that for years. And what Jesus wants you to hear this morning is you are not what happened to you. You are a daughter of the king. Spotless and pure and beautiful before him in his sight. Defined by who you are in him. Not by what was done to you. There are a number of you in here this morning that every time you come to church, you feel this heightened sense of guilt and shame because of things you're struggling with, maybe uh, uh, temptations you've given into week in and week out. Maybe just with this overwhelming sense that you're not who you should be and God wants to set you free from that. God doesn't assign guilt and shame as luggage that you carry around all your life. That doesn't come from him. He wants you to lay it down. He wants to take it from you and to say that in Christ and through Christ, all sin has been taken away entirely. Look back at verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Some of your texts may say he is a new creation or they are a new creation. The old has gone, the new is here. Part of the powerful statement of the way that the NIV translate this, I, I think correctly so, is that all that God said he was going to do as through the Messiah and the Christ, he begins to create a new heavens and a new earth, the renewal of all things, the evidence of that is in the lives of anyone who is in Christ. Anyone who is in Christ demonstrates that new creation has come, that you are indeed part of that new creation, thus a new creation yourself. The funny thing about this word, anyone, when you do a word study in Greek on it, it means anyone. Age doesn't matter. Gender doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what was done to you. Anyone who is in Christ, anyone who is in Christ is evidence that the new creation has come, that what God said would happen has happened and has begun in your life. You are by virtue of that indeed, you yourself, a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. Jesus changed the world. I mean, I could do like a, like a little 30-minute thing, which I will not do, on all of the ways that Jesus has changed the world and reshaped culture. But I'll just say this. He's changed the world. And if you'll let him, he will not do it against your will. He won't do it if you go home and you just eat uh, bun-buns and ho-hos and Twinkies and you lay around watching Netflix and, and TikTok all day long. You know, or maybe guiding light is your thing. I don't know, whatever it is, catching your programs at two. Um, he will not do it in spite of you. But you cannot do it without him. 
Some of you this morning are wondering, man, why can't I seem to get past this? Why can't I, why aren't I experiencing the new life? And I would just say, you may not be trying very hard. See, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. But you've got to be willing to walk with Christ in your growth and your sanctification. Jesus changed the world, and if you'll let him, he'll change you too. And here's the deal. Not only has it always been about Jesus, it's always been by God's grace. Whether in the days of Moses writing Leviticus, or in the New Testament, or in the early church, or the medieval church, church in the Renaissance days, church in our day, all throughout redemption history, it's always been by God's grace. Look at a final couple of verses in Leviticus 16. So what about the people? What are they doing while the high priest is making this sacrifice and the goat is carrying out in the wilderness never to return all the sins from the past year of the people? Look at verse 29 of Leviticus 16. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the 10th day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves or fast and not do any work, whether native born or a foreigner residing among you, because on this day atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. Before I comment further, I just want to say, for those of you in Christ this morning, do you understand that this is your current state, clean from all your sins? It doesn't mean that we don't live with a posture of repentance. It doesn't mean that we don't live confessionally, continuing to confess our ongoing sin. But it means that what Christ did, he did once for all. And it's been applied to you. And you need to start living in it. But here's the thing. The people didn't earn it, did they? And just in case there was any confusion that their sins were removed entirely, not just forgiven, as had happened often known throughout the year during different sacrificial acts, but forgiven and removed entirely from them for the year. In case there was any confusion that it was by something they did, the Lord commands them to do nothing that day. They're to neither eat nor work. Just rest in the work of God. Some of you, truly the godliest thing you could do and begin putting in practice in your life would be simply the habit of resting in God, of beginning to practice Sabbath on a regular, consistent rhythm where you just step back and you don't do anything but rest in God's goodness and the fullness of Christ's work on the cross. Hebrews 7, 27 says this. Unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day by day. First for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself once for all When God calls you to himself and you receive that call, 
And the Holy Spirit brings regeneration in your heart. And you know that you've been made new. And you, by faith, believe Jesus is the answer. Not your effort. Nothing else in the world anymore. Jesus. You become a baptized follower of Christ. His sacrifice for your sins was once for all. And you stand spotless in his sight. You stand spotless in his sight. All you can do is receive it. I want to paint a tiny, tiny earthly picture that breaks down at points as all of them do. But I want everyone to engage your brain with me for just a minute. I want you to think of your absolute closest friends. Like if you're thinking of more than two or three or three or four, you're you're missing it here. Your absolute closest friends. Get them in your mind. And then I, I want you to add to that group the people that you most respect right now. Not people who lived in history or someone you've never met. People you know that you most respect. You have that group in your mind, your closest friends, people that you most respect. And I want you to imagine that sometime this next week, they come to you at your house unannounced. They just show up and surprise you and say, hey, come outside, sit down. We've got a really comfortable lawn chair. We've got some cool drinks for you. We're going to clean every square inch of your home. And you're just going to sit. And into your home goes your absolute closest friends, the people that you respect the most. And they begin room by room getting on their hands and knees and they're scrubbing baseboards and they're climbing up ladders and they're cleaning ceiling fans and they're cleaning windows and they're dusting blinds and they're going in to your bathrooms and they're getting down and they're scrubbing and cleaning around uh, the baseboard, around the toilet, and they're cleaning the toilet. And they're going into all the rooms and they're pulling out dresser drawers. Don't be embarrassed. We all wear the same stuff. And they're cleaning it all, organizing it, folding it. They're going into your closets. They're going into your garage. They're going into that drawer in your kitchen. And at some point, they welcome you back in and your entire home shines. And all you could do was receive that gift. You with me? And there's a certain feeling you have as you imagine those people doing that stuff with delight and joy for you. Well, can I just say, church, God's delight and joy in doing what he's done for you in Christ is infinitely greater than that picture. And when you and I understand what he's done for us and the finality of it and the fullness of it, the eternality of it, there's a sense of that awkward delight and gratitude and sometimes discomfort in us. God, how could you? Could it be true that you've taken all of my sin, that everything that I've done and everything that's been done to me has no power over me in Christ? But you define me, you cleanse me, and you purify me. That's where you stand this morning, church. 
That's who you are in Christ, spotless. Because he has taken away all the sins of all of his people entirely. Will you stand this morning? I want to challenge you as we come to a time of response and reflection as the band leads us in worship. And as we do week by week, we invite you, if you're baptized believers and you feel led by God, by God's Spirit this morning, to step out at any time while we're singing and observe communion in the front or in the back, taking a piece of bread and dipping it in the juice, move off to the side, spend some time with the Lord and pray, receive communion. But I want to specifically challenge you to lay down the guilt and shame that you carry. Let it go. God's asking for it. He's saying, I love you. I delight in you. My heart dances. In you, my child. And all you've got to do is say, yes, God. God, I give it to you. Let's pray. Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us.